Hello, and welcome to the second episode for the month of October of the BV Online podcast, your slice of genuine Dorset life. I'm Jenny Devitt. And hello from me, Terry Bennett. In this episode, Mike Howell tells us about how he and his team are keeping alive the ancient art of thatching. And how cheesemonger Carolyn Hopkins' vintage van is now a regular sight at local markets. Simon Hoare, MP, bemoans recent goings-on at Westminster. The Green Party's Ken Huggins says how the squirrel in your garden can benefit from where you shop. Labour's Pat Osborne compares the recent mini-budget to a poor effort at GCSE economics. Mike Chapman of the North Dorset Lib Dems says there's a need to watch the new Dorset investment zones. The rebirth of the Green Man pub and its historical context. And Roger Guttridge unravels the sketch map that often accompanies Hardy's novel Tess of the D'Urbervilles. In this month's A Country Living, Tracy Beardsley met Mike Howell. Far from drawing life's short straw, Master Thatcher Mike switched career to own an artisan business and teach future generations an ancient skill. Mike Howe's office this week is a stunning 16th century cottage in the heart of the beautiful village of Abbotsbury. From high on the roof, he has uninterrupted views of rolling hills and the sea beyond. Homeowners often join me on the scaffolding to get a bird's eye view of the area where they live, he says. Owner of Dorset Master Thatcher, Mike and the two-man team at his business are unlikely ever to be out of work. The county has more thatched properties than any other area in Britain, almost a tenth of all thatched roofs, according to thatchinginfo.com. That's around four for every square Dorsetshire mile, says this website. Despite the physical graft of thatching and working in all extremes of weather, summer's searing heat meant starting at dawn, Mike believes that to have a job where we can be artisans is wonderful. He came to this most rural of professions in his mid-thirties, having originally trained as an engineer. Being indoors, clocking in and out, wasn't for me. I went into farming, working in Wales, Kent and Canada, before coming to Dorset. I was herding cows one day and I saw a thatcher on a roof. I thought, I wouldn't mind a go. I wrote letters and finally got a job working for a local thatcher, Glen Holloway. Becoming a master thatcher takes time. With no formal apprenticeships available, Mike learned on the job. It took him ten years to really get into the groove and qualify as a master thatcher himself. To be a member of the prestigious Master Thatchers Association, thatching skills are regularly assessed to ensure all work is completed to the highest standard of craftsmanship. Being a master thatcher is the kite mark of good workmanship. Mike says, with a career shift like this in my late 30s, people were concerned that I wouldn't cut it. I proved them wrong, and here we are now. Mike took over the business from his mentor, Glenn, and now employs two young men. Like Mike, Rowan Hennessy knew engineering was not for him. An outdoor occupation was calling, and he began working with Mike nine years ago. Now 29, he too is a proud Master Thatcher. Rowan deftly shows me how he uses a traditional twisting spar, a piece of wood with two sharp pointed ends used to staple a layer of straw into the roof. He tells me, there's so many techniques when it comes to thatching, you never stop learning. It's really rewarding to see a thatch you've worked on still looking great many years later. The longevity makes all the effort worthwhile. The huge variety of techniques are one reason it takes so long to gain master thatcher status. You can only be assessed for a skill when you've actually worked on that particular kind of roof. 
James Hogg was just 15 when he started working for Mike, raking up straw. Now he's doing a bricklaying apprenticeship. There are still no thatching apprenticeships in Dorset colleges, and working with Mike and Rowan two days a week. He says, I love working with my hands. Rowan and Mike are really great to work with too. I'm a bit scared of heights, which is a challenge, but I'm gradually getting more confident. The history of thatching goes back thousands of years, and Mike is determined that the age-old skills should continue. It's important to have new generations learning these traditional skills and continuing historic crafts. If we take a roof apart and there's some spectacular work underneath it from craftsmen gone before us, we document it. It's a brilliant teaching tool for James, says Mike. Artistic flair really kicks in when it comes to creating rooftop creatures, originally used as the Thatcher's mark, an advertisement for who did the work. We love creating signature finials for customers. You can buy them, but we make our own. We've made swans, cats, dogs, even a huge dinosaur for a cottage on the Jurassic coastline. Mike and his young Thatchers also preserve aspects of modern life. We get asked to put time capsules in a thatch, which will sit tight for 50 years or more. It's a real honour to know our craftsmanship is bringing past and present together under one roof. Quickfire questions. What book are you reading? The Whalebone Theatre by Joanna Quinn. The author is the daughter of a customer I did a thatch for. You learn all sorts of things from the people you work for and meet some fascinating characters. A-list dinner party guests? Our new king. You hear so much negative press about him. I'd love to meet the real person. He could also leave his car and butler with me. Jack Hargreaves. What an advocate for rural occupations. And Barry Sheen. For Rowan, as he's a motorbike fanatic. A vintage van was the unlikely solution for cheesemonger Carolyn Hopkins. Now she's an unmissable regular sight at local markets, as Rachel Rowe reports. Carolyn Hopkins' bright blue 1969 Citron HY van, Susie, brightens up Shaftesbury High Street like a beacon attracting customers. But what it contains is more important. This tiny vintage truck is packed with a selection of delicious cheeses as it travels to markets around the Blackmore Vale. When I met Carolyn, she had just finished judging at the Global Cheese Awards in Froome. It's part of the annual Froome Cheese Show. I'm one of the judges, and we get all kinds of artisan cheeses there. It started off the back of cheddar and just grew. It's very well known within the cheese industry. Tell us how you got started. I used to manage Turnbull's in Shaftesbury. Remember that amazing shop? I was taken on one Christmas and I stayed. When it closed in 2018, I knew I still wanted to do something with cheese. This job means I'm selling cheese all day. I have my van, the Truckle Truck, as I can't face putting up a gazebo at markets. The van also attracts people too. How big is the team? It's just me. What's flying out of the van? My bestseller is Gorgonzola. It's young, soft, gooey, and I've sold out of it today. There are also cheddars from Westcombe Dairy and Montgomery. The tourists always look for cheddar, as they like to taste local cheeses. I've also got some artisan cheese here from Feltham's Farm. I have Rebel Nun, but I think their new Gert Lush will turn out to be their bestseller. We have some interesting Somerset cheeses, not just cheddar. Pennard Ridge produces cheese mainly from sheep, goats and buffalo. And White Lake makes cheeses mainly from sheep and goats. And then we have Dorset Blue Vinnie, of course. 
Theirs is a fantastic story with how they found an old recipe in the garage and started producing what was a forgotten recipe, almost lost forever, and now they have a large business. How do you choose cheeses? Some of it is always here. I also like the very weird and wonderful. And then there's the reliable stuff that people can't get enough of. And also the cheese story. So people come to look at what else is here. Apart from the story behind Dorset Blue Vinny, there's a lovely Princess Alicia Victoria from Switzerland. It's made by three brothers who live in the same valley and is named after the princess who worked with the Swiss Red Cross during World War II. Your biggest challenge? Adapting to a small counter and shelf space. I have to be really strict with myself. If it doesn't sell, I don't carry it. What are you most proud of? Just the way people have taken to this business, especially here in Shaftesbury. They have really taken it to heart. People are almost possessive, saying, here's our truckle truck. What's next for the truckle truck? It's tricky in the current climate. First, getting through Christmas. Then next year, I'm looking at cheese-related hot food like raclette. But there are quite a few logistics to sort out first. The Truckle Truck is at Shaftesbury Market on Thursday mornings and Wincanton on Fridays. Carolyn also visits Sherborne Farmers Market, Barrachalk and Berwick St John. And if you want Gorgonzola, be early as it sells out fast. www.thetruckletruck.com Politics There won't be a general election until 2024, but that doesn't mean the fight for practical, pragmatic politics ends argues Simon Hoare, MP. The Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes tells us, to everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven. As the hand of autumn firmly settles over our landscape, we are more than aware of the ending of one season and a passing to the next. And so, perhaps, we might be seeing this on our political landscape too. I fought my first parliamentary election in 1997, not a great year for the Tory party, and an election that heralded 13 years of Labour government. Slowly the Tory party, in the words of the song, got itself up, dusted itself off, and started all over again. We should expect a general election in 2024. I know that many want it to be earlier. I can understand their argument, but I do not share it. With all of the recent turmoil and sadness, Covid, Ukraine, the death of the Queen, interest rates and inflation, I really do not believe that it would be in the interests of the UK to take six weeks for a general election campaign. I am firmly of the view that most people want the government to focus, and focus on solving today's problems in a practical and pragmatic way. I will work tirelessly, as I have done since first elected, to ensure that the interests of North Dorset are taken into account when policy evolves. I want to make sure that government is doing all it can to help and support local people. In so doing, I appreciate that sometimes puts me out of step with government. But I have usually found that the common sense side of the argument that I am inclined to be on usually wins through in the end. Let me give you some recent examples. I have made clear, both publicly and privately, that I will not support a resurrection of fracking. I will continue with this campaign and hope that government listens. Fracking is bad news for Dorset's environment. I hope government listens to the public mood. 
Likewise, I could not fathom any economic, social or political merit in removing the 45 pence income tax banned. The government listened to many voices making the same point and has changed direction. I welcome that. I have also made clear that I believe that benefits across the board should rise with the rate of inflation this year. You cannot build a successful economy by making the lives of some of the most vulnerable in society more difficult. It is the dragon of inflation that must be slayed, not our pledge to protect the vulnerable of our country. During the summer I made clear that helping households with fuel bills was not a handout but a vital measure of support due to unforeseen and arguably unforeseeable events. I therefore welcome the package of measures that the government has announced for both domestic and business customers. I continue to advocate for a windfall tax, as incidentally does Shell. As a Conservative, I of course welcome competitive and realistic levels of tax, both personal and corporate. Reducing the tax burden is important and is a noble enterprise, but it should only be delivered when it's affordable. I remain distinctly uncomfortable with the strategy of borrowing to fund tax cuts and wait to see what the Office for Budget Responsibility has to say on the matter before the Treasury proceeds. I remain implacably opposed to delivering tax cuts funded by reducing investment in vital public services that the vast, vast majority of our fellow citizens use, be it local government, health or education. High-quality public services produce results which play a key role in levelling up. Being poorly educated, feeling unsafe or being unhealthy does not economy contributors make. So whatever the season, I shall continue, to the best of my abilities, to advocate for North Dorset in the corridors of power. To try to secure the best deal I can for you. I share Churchill's old view, not one shared by any party whip's office, that it's constituency, country, then party that should dictate and shape an MP's action. The squirrel in your back garden really can benefit from where you choose to spend your weekly shop, says North Dorset Green Party's Ken Huggins. Two years ago, we enjoyed our best hazelnut harvest ever, with hundreds of nuts to enjoy through Christmas. Last year was very different, with just a handful left. The culprit appeared this summer, a squirrel digging furiously in the garden and every now and then emerging triumphantly with a hazelnut. I was a bit miffed. But we need to share our harvest with other creatures and I appreciated the hazelnut saplings that sprang up where the squirrel had missed some of its buried treasure. This summer's harvest is looking very different though. In the heat and drought, our hazelnut tree lost half its leaves midsummer, and then the nuts began to drop. They were empty nothing for us or the squirrel. On the nearby Orners Gorse Butterfly Reserve, the wild blackberries are small and dry, the sloes are tiny and the elderberries are almost non-existent. Slim pickings for those who like to forage treats from nature's bounty, but we can buy food elsewhere. Some wildlife will undoubtedly fail to survive this winter for lack of food. The UK is rated as one of the most nature-deprived countries in the world largely due to intensive industrialised farming. Since 1950, we have lost 118,000 miles of hedgerow habitat and 97% of wildflower meadows. Unsustainable use of artificial fertilisers and pesticides is destroying our soils, polluting our waters and crashing the insect populations that pollinate our crops.
Of course, these devastating environmental costs are never included in the price of the supermarket's cheap food. We, as consumers, are not powerless. What we choose to buy and not to buy makes a real difference. We can choose to eat more seasonal and less highly processed food, and those who can to support organic producers whenever possible. Do spare a thought for the wildlife that will inevitably struggle during this post-drought winter. Put food out for the birds, and perhaps let some of your garden grow wild to provide a habitat for the insects and other creatures that life depends on. Perhaps join the Rivers of Flowers project and grow pollinator-friendly wildflowers, or join groups working to restore our wildlife. You have the power. Infighting and infantile economics set the table for a fairly disastrous first course from our new Prime Minister, says Labour's Pat Osborne. Few can deny it was a disastrous first Conservative Party conference for Liz Truss. Her tax-cut U-turn has been a total humiliation for the new Prime Minister and her Chancellor, prompting an infighting free-for-all amongst the Tories, reminiscent of the bun fight seen from Bugsy Malone. But it's hard to find any amusement in a political pie in the face when it's rooted in a collective blunder that will continue to do so much damage to those who can least afford it. According to the Resolution Foundation, despite scrapping the abolition of the 45p tax rate, the measures announced in the now infamous mini-budget will deliberately widen the inequality gap further. The richest 5% will gain an average of £3,500 next year, while the poorest 20% of households will gain around £90. In fact, the richest 5% still stand to gain more than the poorest half of the income distribution combined, with any real-term benefit for most of us being swallowed up by the spiralling cost of living crisis, made worse by rocketing interest rates driven by the government's economic incompetence. While Truss and Quartang's £18 billion corporation tax cut remains standing, the Chancellor has announced 18 billion cuts to our already creaking public services. Meanwhile, our schools and our hospitals require intensive care themselves after 12 years of Tory austerity, and the hard-working people who work in them, and whom we clapped during lockdown, desperately deserve a pay rise, not another real-term pay cut. But as most of us are finding it more and more difficult to make ends meet, Liz Truss's instinct is to stand firmly by a mini-budget which is designed to line the pockets of the rich and wealthy, and has all the substance of a GCSE economics assignment copied from the Chuckle Brothers on the bus to school. And of course the whole political situation has changed since Labour's Pat Osborne wrote that article. The national picture feels like the beginning of the end, says North Dorset Lib Dems Mike Chapman, but there's need to watch the new investment zone. After all the flourish and noisy braying in past weeks from the government benches about real conservative policy, it all looks a bit less professional today. There are two fundamental concerns here. Does this package deliver growth or does it merely deliver division? Then, does this package presage a confident, capable government for the next two years? I do try to be positive, but look, it is desperately simple. Those earning the least keep less because personal allowances are frozen. And the mood music says that benefits will be pared back. Otherwise, as individuals or businesses, we are back to where we were a few months ago, except that interest rates are rising, impacting mortgages, 
the weak pound and higher cost of imports are stoking inflation, and energy bills will still be going up. I cannot see how these measures in these circumstances deliver an incentive to spend and or invest the drivers of growth. The huge cost has been loaded onto the nation's credit card in a budget lacking the other side of the equation, but it was the insouciance, the devil-may-care attitude, as much as the fiscal irresponsibility, that spooked the markets. Added to this, we have the continuing and spreading industrial unrest and anxiety about budgets in every other area of public expenditure. Great start. It feels more like the beginning of the end. Confrontation politics. Closer to home, we have Dorset Council looking to turn parts of the county into an investment zone, with all the regulatory relaxation that implies. To suggest that some of the motivation might be to help dig themselves out of a hole they're in with a local plan might be unkind. We shall all need to watch, though, how the zone idea develops, especially when seen in conjunction with the mooted relaxation of the planning system. With Dorset and Somerset both involved, there must also be a danger of a race to the bottom, as each competes to attract bigger business investment. Our democracy, so deeply attached to its polarities and its confrontational ways, struggles to find consensus of the kind many of the more successful nations seem to manage. Risky shifts in policy, ignoring the experts, have rarely served us well. Consensus may be hard to achieve, but it is the soundest basis for public policy. Stirs nexus. Enough philosophy. Back to our local world. There are exciting prospects for Sturmanster Newton's Nexus Business Incubator Project, whose launch happened on the evening of the 10th of October, upstairs in the Emporium. It brought together many parts of the community, including local business organisations, philanthropists and volunteers, to create a mentoring environment for start-ups and fledgling businesses. Backed up by seasoned professional advice and support, including the potential for investment, it looks to be an excellent example of what can be achieved by working together towards a highest common denominator. Three words that trump any race to the bottom, methinks. Local history. Roger Guttridge says well done to successive owners of the Green Man for sticking with the King's Stag pub's traditional name. It's refreshing to find a historic pub that hasn't had its name meddled with in recent decades, especially when the name is traditional and meaningful. And the Green Man at King Stag is just that. According to its website, the hostelry has been in the village since the 17th century and was originally known as the Inn at King's Stag. But it has been the Green Man for as long as anyone alive can remember, and in fact much longer. I happen to have a copy of Kelly's Directory of Dorset for 1931, and after referring me to the entry for Lidlinch, Kingstag being in that parish, it told me that the Green Man's landlord, 91 years ago, was one Albert Percy Padfield. The Green Man name is synonymous with forestry and rural England and a symbol of rebirth, representing the cycle of new growth that begins every spring. That is especially appropriate right now, given the green shoots that are almost visibly sprouting at the pub. After what the website itself describes as a rocky few years, the Green Man is back on its feet, with an impressive new beer garden and the additional attraction of a coffee shop. 
The two pictures included in this month's Then and Now column are from the early 20th century and show how little the building itself has changed in more than 100 years. One showing three cars appeared in my book, Blackmore Vale Camera, in 1991, when I was able to identify the owners of those with the Dorset FX number plate. Far left, FX307, seated beside his driver in the 60-horsepower Fiat, is Sir Randolph Baker, 1879-1953, owner of the Ranston Estate at Shrotton and MP for North Dorset. Sir Randolph, who was twice awarded the DSO, while serving in the Dorset Yeomanry during the First World War, was a motoring pioneer whose first car, a 10-horsepower Panhard, was only the second in the county. The identity of the car FX387 next to the horse and wagon, far right, is in dispute. In 1991 I had reason to think it belonged to Francis Learworth of Hanford. But in Lost Dorset, the villages and countryside, based on Barry Cuff's collection of old Dorset postcards, Author David Burnett identifies the car as a 16-horsepower Vauxhall owned by Thomas Spiller of Luckham Farm at Milton Abbas. I can't currently resolve this except to suggest that perhaps it was owned by both gentlemen at different times. The LC number plate on the centre car suggests a London registration. The other early 1900s picture shows a travelling knife grinder and another local tradesman, as well as the usual gaggle of children who were attracted by the novelty of the camera, just as kids today, and some attention-seeking adults, love to linger in the background when there's a TV camera about. There are two stories as to how King Stag itself acquired its name. It was called Kingistake in a document dated 1337, while Kingstake Bridge is mentioned in the 16th century. These probably refer to a king's stake which once marked the spot at the bridge over the River Lydon where the parishes of Lidlinch, Pullham and Hazelbury Bryan meet. The alternative place name story is much more fun but probably untrue. Legend has it that King Henry III was hunting in the Blackmore Vale when he saw a white hart which he decided to spare. When the king's bailiff later slew the magnificent beast near the bridge over the Lydon, the king was so angry that he threw the offender in jail and fined the whole vale. Hence, King's Stag. And that's all we have for you for the second episode of the October BV Online podcast. We'll be back again next week with episode three. So do join us then. In the meantime, it's bye-bye from me, Jenny Devitt. And it's goodbye from me, Terry Bennett. <laughs>